Welcome to episode two of the HPBA podcast. We're excited to share this conversation that Tim and I had with Dr. Mark Besselink, professor of surgery at the Academic Medical Center at the University of Amsterdam, where he specializes in pancreatic and HPB surgery. He has been at the forefront of employing and critically evaluating the application of minimally invasive surgical approaches for pancreatic cancer, pancreatitis, and HPB surgery, both in the Netherlands and internationally. Dr. Besselink co-founded the Dutch Pancreatitis Working Group and the Dutch Pancreatic Cancer Group, as well as founding the European Consortium for MIS Pancreatic Surgery. Moreover, Dr. Besselink and his colleagues serve as a prime example of collaborative efforts to better the care of HPB surgical patients. And in this episode, we discuss this, as well as some of the key trials that he has recently been involved in. The HPBA podcast is happy to share with you our first episode in our show and tell series with Dr. Mark Besselink. All right. Well, uh, we're here today with Dr. Mark Besselink over the internet, obviously not in person, but um, we appreciate your time, Dr. Besselink. Um, so, uh, you know, we wanted to focus on, you know, you've obviously written these very important papers and you're the senior author on these major studies. So we want to try to get a feel for, um, you know, not only what's in the papers, but what's not in the paper and kind of your thoughts beyond what's just written on the page. Um, but as a way of intro and kind of getting started, we'd love to hear your story, how you got where you are, where you trained, all that kind of stuff. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, I was trained in Utrecht, which is a city in the middle of the Netherlands. And uh, already before I started with surgery, I was interested in the pancreas. Uh, no one knows how. I think it was a coincidence, actually, but I started doing research in acute pancreatitis. And I think it was because a friend said we're gonna, he was going to talk to that nice professor of surgery who was doing something with the pancreas. And I was a third-year medical student. And since then, I never left the pancreas. Wow. So. Uh, when I went into uh, uh, surgical training, I was interested in MIS, obviously, as well as pancreas. So during my surgical training, I did um, I managed to organize that I did six months of uh, open HPB, uh, robot esophagus, and uh, laparoscopic colorectal. So dedicated three times six months in my surgical training, which was a good start. Then I did a year uh, open HPB fellowship in uh, Amsterdam. So the Academic Medical Center with Professor Guma. And then on, I went to Southampton for um, eight months, uh, minimally invasive HPB, where I met my current uh, close uh, close partner and research friend, uh, Moa Boelal. Uh, so I was actually his fellow in uh, 2013. I was the fellow of Moa Boelal. And, uh, and then when I went back to Amsterdam, immediately got a staff position and start building my practice there. And now uh, since then, We've done all these MIS studies uh, basically together as uh, as partners in the field. So that's that's how I got started. You're only seven years out from training and built all these uh, collaborative trials and everything. That's really impressive. Yeah. So that kind of yeah. that's a really good thing to touch on first before we get in the papers. We've spoken with a lot of mentors and leaders in the field, and something we've always talked about is collaboration. Can you speak a little bit to how how you start with an idea from the ground up and how important yeah. collaborative collaboration yeah. is, especially across the channel, if you will, and the international yeah. to answer these questions. Absolutely. So the first thing you need to realize is that we live in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And you probably know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So if we don't collaborate, we drown, literally. <laughs> so 
75% of our country is below sea side, is below sea level. So 75% of our country is below sea level. So there's been a long-standing tradition in the Netherlands to collaborate on all levels of society, right? So from farmers to industry, from government. So if we don't collaborate, we cannot maintain the dikes and uh, make sure that everyone gets a piece of the pie. So there's a long-standing tradition in Dutch society that if you want to move ahead, you collaborate. So for instance, it's maybe a little far stretch what I'm going to say, but you had uh, the East Indies company from Amsterdam and from, from Holland in the Netherlands, which which was, was basically the first uh, organization where everyone was shareholder. And so, right. so in the Netherlands, there's a long-standing tradition. If you want to get ahead, you need to collaborate. So that's in our DNA. So that's also in the surgical field. Of course, we are only a tiny country. We're the size of Maryland. And we only have 17, one seven million inhabitants. So if we, if we want to do anything in the world, we need to do it all together. Otherwise, we're just tiny. So that's, that's one. And then two is that once you get, once everyone realizes that, they, and they, there is a group, there's a group, there's a logo, there's a website. Uh, people know in, in the group, if you're in the group, you get a fair share. So in the collaborative study groups, uh, once people realize that they can multiply their research output by collaborating, and you've established a structure where they know that, uh, for instance, say the second biggest center in, in the Netherlands is Rotterdam. Rotterdam, they know if they participate in our trials, then if the next trial is from them, we will automatically participate in their trial. So, so there's been a longstanding culture in the Netherlands of collaboration in society. And because of that, and because we're in essence are, are a tiny player in the world, uh, also in surgery. So, so we, we build on that culture. And what we've done in recent years is, is taking that forward into Europe. And, and mm. we're starting to see that people are realizing uh, this work. So what happened in the past is you could have, could have more multicenter trials in Europe. But what typically happened was that one senior professor sat down at his desk, smoked a big cigar, and wrote a big protocol. Yeah. Then yeah. shut out a few emails and say, hey, will you participate in my trial okay and that that works for a little bit but after a few years that stops because that's not a collaboration mm, right so now people are realizing that you have to sit down work together amend the protocol take a little bit more time so it's everybody's trial and then you have more buy-in of people more participation and if then this patient has to be randomized on a Friday afternoon, five o'clock. Mm. They they will also go the extra mile and randomize the patient because everyone feels it's also their trial and not just the big professor's trial in which they are just a small participant. Complete yeah. buy-in. What about yeah. what about from the from the uh, patient's perspective and the culture in the Netherlands? Because a lot of uh, you know, it's very difficult to do surgical technique trials. For example, it's a very difficult thing to do. And when you discuss yeah. this with a patient, it seems like for such a small population, even everyone there has to be collaborative and be you know yeah. totally willing yeah. to undergo a trial. Great, great point. So, no, so <laughs> what you need what what you need to realize for that is that that based on U.S. standards, we are basically Bernie Sanders' country. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Apropos, so very Iowa yesterday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. So you've got you've got healthcare insurance is mandatory, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have a private insurance, but it's mandatory to have one. Okay, so basically it's like Medicare, you pay for it, but the entire country has it, but there is no private care for pancreas, for instance. Okay, so if you want to get, so for instance, during the Leopard 1 trial, laparoscopic distal, if you wanted to get a laparoscopic distal pancreatectomy in the country anywhere, the only way to get it was to participate in the trial, and then you had a 50% chance. Wow. If not, it was a 0% chance, no matter if you brought 10 million euros. That's incredible. Wow. So the theory being that, so so you can think about it purely academically. I do not get paid per procedure. I get paid a fixed amount. Right. Yeah. No matter if I do one pancreas or a thousand pancreases per year. So you can think about it strict academically. If you think about it strict academically, if you put in the effort to do a randomized trial, it means that there's general equipoise and there and you're you're generally unsure, right? Because there's a hell of Hell of a job right. to set up a trial. I mean, you, you're not doing this for fun. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you then decide a trial is needed, you can make a plea that is actually unethical to do that procedure outside the trial. So, yeah. And patients actually, again, in this crazy place called the Netherlands, they actually, you explain this to them and they say, yeah. Well, in fact, yeah. It makes so sense. Does the, so is the, you know, the insurance company or the insurer or, involved in the trial i mean if they're the one here no so we we get paid the same amount of money for open or laparoscopic distal pancreatectomy oh okay so you're doing it purely based on outcomes i mean it's purely 100 so zero money involved and it's also it's also everything is normal care because the laparoscopic distal was already being done before the trial so it's nothing novel so it's everything in the trial ct scans everything is normal clinical care that's that's very interesting. It's very different than here, obviously. But, I know. Uh, I realize. I realize. You know, and that frames for our, our listeners. That frames a lot of the important background that's hard to gather when you're reading the methods right, in a lot right. of these trials, which we talk about on a daily basis, and have really you know changed the conversation for us, um, which is a much different system. So that's really good information. And so so with EMIPS, who um, how did EMIPS kind of come about? And where does the funding for that come? Because it's across multiple countries, and yes. you know, obviously, the insurance and things like that are very different in different yes. places. How do you? How did that all get organized? And what's the sort of the structure that runs that now? Yeah. So basically, the feeling in Europe is like, if this tiny country, crazy Dutchman, can do this trial, why can't <laughs> we do it? Right. So, so we're trying to get that message across, and and saying so why not just collaborate so you know that we from the netherlands we've got the structure we know how to run these trials for many things we are too small let's collaborate it's a win-win you get Mm. paper in hopefully a great country we have great discussions and okay so everyone bought in on that concept for instance for first we started with the diploma trial Uh, at that moment there was not even the, the, the group was not even called emips so Abu Ilal from Southampton, who's now the chair in Brescia, has a very large network. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he invited a lot of people. I invited the people I knew. And we sat down. We had, I think, about four or five meetings uh, during European meetings. So twice we invited everyone to Schiphol Airport. And we took two years to discuss on a diploma trial protocol. Uh, because talking with surgeons from Italy, Spain, France, Germany is almost as bad as getting all the U.S. surgeons together, right? They're all kingdoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so almost. We, we took, yes. So we took a lot of time, very pragmatic trial, and in the end, uh, everyone agreed 
or they were fed up with talking about it for two years. Anyway, they, they said, let's, let's do this trial. Uh, and basically, again, we said, um, you should offer a minimally invasive distal for cancer only in the trial. Because why would you join this trial if you offer this procedure outside the trial? Right. If you think about it, it's strange. It's, 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 it's strictly academically, it's incorrect. And all the care in the trial is, is normal care. It is normal insured care. So, also, so we are not paying for any procedures. We're not paying for any scan. So we got a grant from Medtronic uh, that pays for the salary of our PhD students who are full-time uh, PhDs, typically just out of medical school or did one year of surgical residency before training. Okay. And the PhDs run all the trials. So all publications from the Netherlands, 99%, the first author is a PhD student mm. who does a clinical PhD for three years full time and never sees a lab. My PhDs don't even know where the lab is in my hospital. Wow. So that's a good segue to start yeah. maybe talking about these trials, if you don't mind. We could maybe start sure. talking about the diploma trial. Can you just start maybe tell us a little bit how that, like you said, the two years of meetings on how to design this. What was the thinking going into it and how did that evolve to the project that we all know about now? Yeah. So, so of, co of course, most centers were, even before Leopard 1, uh, they saw that the laparoscopic distal was a pretty good procedure to do. It's yeah. like a laparoscopic minor liver. I mean, basically, everyone sees that patients recover more quickly, and it's, it's basically a no-brainer if right. you had the training. And, mm. and then there were some concerns from people saying, well, for cancer, should you do it for cancer? Yeah. Um, and we think we can, we can. And so the main question was, should we do a trial at all? And the second question was, is it feasible to do a trial? Because what's going to be the endpoint of the trial? Right. So we had a lot of discussions, and 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 we agreed that the only way we're going to con convince the hardliners is to do a randomized trial. Uh, but the the endpoint of the trial could not be a. So what what do you want to show, right? Do you want to show it's yeah. better? You already know it's better for recovery. So you only want to show it's not worse for cancer. Yeah, right. For cancer outcomes. So we said we'll we'll do the trial on non-inferiority. We only want to show it's not worse for radicality. And if it's not worse for radicality, probably everyone is gonna gonna offer it to their patients in the future if they are not, not already offering it yet. Right. So that was basically the, the sum up of two years uh, discussion. Fantastic. And as I understand it, um, the actual randomization is how far along? We are exactly 50%. That's and right. we are one patient uh, below schedule, which is amazing. We're basically nice. exactly wow. on schedule. Wow. All right. Yeah, I think I s saw some social media posts from both yourself and Dr. Abu Halal yeah, about yeah, we, we are trying to restrain ourselves, but we find it difficult. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, maybe just to help with uh, the, to frame it for the listeners, we could talk about um, the retrospective study, the kind of the foundational data that I think supported the the um, protocol, the prospective protocol, which is um, published in Annals of Surgery in, in January of 2019. And so why don't we talk about um, this propensity score match study and, and what you found in there? Was this surprising? Um, or was it what you hope to find to then lead to the prospective study? Yeah, it's a bit odd because the, the, the very big series, I think like 1,200 distal pancreatectomies right, for cancer. Yeah. And when we matched, we got, we got down to a much smaller number, clearly. We, we went to great length to make two comparable, two comparable groups. 
and mm -hmm. then very strangely although as you expect survival was exactly the same right. there's still some strange unexplained differences between the groups like more are zero resection and minimally invasive right, Why is right. that? Uh, more lymph nodes with open mm -hmm. much more gerota resection in open so these these strange things that make you think yeah. like yeah. i'm not sure we got the matching as nice as we would have liked to so moving moving forward from that going on to the prospective study in the netherlands um and i guess maybe by proxy the uk as well if you guys are doing this together are more people doing uh, more surgeons doing a minimally invasive distal pancreatectomy laparoscopically as compared to robotically um, yeah, sure. or another both in the retrospective study but uh, mostly lap i think in the retrospective yeah, yeah mostly lap. so in most centers so for instance in the netherlands with the help of the of the excellent Pittsburgh team, we did a training program for Robot Whipple. So we've we've done yeah. uh, over 260 yeah. Robot Whipples just in the last two years in the Netherlands. But people then they have a scarcity of using the robot. They mm. use the for distals. They continue to do laparoscopic. For the distals. So in the trial, actually, most patients are now from Italy, uh, and most of the cases are being done laparoscopic. Would like to move on to talk about the Leopard series now and how we started with Leopard One. Um, and how you how you came to that? We were interested in, in obviously talking about some of the outcomes of the trial, how you came to design this and implement it, um, and then also how you chose your um, primary endpoint being functional recovery. Yes. So the um, with the Leopard One, we first did analysis in the Netherlands to see uh, what percentage of patients were being operated minimally invasive, and it turned out to be actually a small proportion, only one in ten. Yeah. And of those, uh, one in three was converted. So we said that those figures are not up to par. Right. So we we spoke to Moa Builal, and he agreed to train all of us, or at least to, to train to train everyone in the country who who wanted to. And we said we made a deal. We said we'll train you for free if you immediately thereafter agree to participate in the randomized trial huh. which Sorry. basically was a, was a, was a, was a typical dutch thing to do and it was a good deal and it was a win-win and everyone agreed so we right. we i think on on 10 or 12 occasions we flew in mo to Schiphol airport and uh, my phd Thijs de roy uh, brought him into all ors in the netherlands and he, he was very happy with the, with the capacity of the surgeons. He just had to learn them a few tips and tricks to do the operation safely and smoothly. And immediately after the, the training program, we, we started with the trial. Uh, the question on the primary endpoint was relatively simple because we had two trials going in the Netherlands and Europe on minimally invasive liver surgery. And mm -hmm. already in those trials, we had used uh, which were designed by the group from Maastricht primarily, also in the Netherlands, uh, the functional recovery uh, endpoint had been used. And we sort of liked it because it takes a little bit of um, the judgment that goes into to actually discharge a patient or the fact that it's so much related often to whether uh, the patient and the family is happy to to be discharged. Right. So it makes it, it, makes it a bit more objective. And again, this is for all patients who are undergoing a distal, regardless of, of pathology, which is the contrast to diploma, just for- Yeah, correctly. So, yeah. so, so this, was, this was the trial you would do first, right? This was right. The, the, the overall question, should you do in general 
offer MIS versus open to all cases. Also, the trial, of course, that would uh, would uh, recruit sufficient numbers of patients in the Netherlands alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's uh, and cancer was not excluded in that trial. So there are a few patients with cancer included. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trial ran very smoothly again. It was actually finished, uh, I think, slightly ahead of schedule. And uh, so we were very, very happy with the with the outcome. And so just to kind of summarize the findings, the uh, minimally invasive was associated with a two-day shorter time to functional recovery. Uh, conversion rate was 8%, so fairly low. The operative blood loss was lower in the MIS group. Um, no significant difference in complications, although delayed gastric emptying was significantly lower in the MIS group, as was Correct. the need for uh, percutaneous gastrostomy tube. Um, and there was a trend, uh, p-value 0. 0, uh, 0.07, towards increased uh, grade BC fistulas in the minimally invasive group, but no difference in the need for essentially IR drainage for one of those Correct. Fistulas. Yeah, so the so that was the one thing that that I technically learned from the trial. Um, the the amount of patients with high drain amylase on day three. So so the day you would normally use for the fistula definition, the uh, the rate of patients with high amylase on day three was exactly similar in both groups. Uh. Uh, the amount of patients that had an additional percutaneous drainage for a collection was also exactly the same in two groups. So that difference is solely explained by the fact that patients were often uh, so happy to go home on day three or four when the amylase in the drain was still high and they did not get back to the outpatient clinic until two weeks later. Yeah. Yeah, so by that time drain output looked a little bit mucky and regardless of amylase level, surgeons were often afraid to take out the drain and then mm. left the drain in for another week. And by then it had become uh, a clinically relevant fistula because the, the surgical drain had been in place for three weeks. So what, what I myself technically learned from that trial is to get these patients back in the outpatient clinic or on the ward after a few days to recheck the MLAs and then take out the drain. Hmm. Yeah. And then that may have translated to a lesser fistula rate is what you're Absolutely. saying. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so so we, we, we did a series on that with patients from Abu Hilal and and he changed that policy as well. And then you you saw the fistula rate going down, because because you you need to manage your patients if they go home really early with the drain, have them back early to check the drain and remove as soon as possible. Yeah. Um. So just to kind of go back to the methods here, something that I I found very um that I really want to talk to you about was again designing trials based on surgical technique, I think for surgeons has always been one of the hardest things to do because of the standardization of the procedure when you're using so many different surgeons to do what is supposed to be a standardized technique. Can you talk a little bit more about the the training of the participants? Um, I know that you you said they come in and got training programs, it's mostly tips and tricks, but for the most part, how did you guarantee, or the, as best you could, guarantee a similar um, operation for all the trial participants? Yeah. So, so they had all just participated in a training program, which involved a very detailed description of the technique, a video uh, uh, drawings of of how to mobilize the, the the pancreas in what direction, how to to loop the pancreas with vessel loops, to hang it with vessel loops. 
detailed technique on how to close the stapler using uh, Horatio Esben's uh, graded compression technique. Right. So it was all pretty standardized because of that. On the other hand, um, the question is really in, in a surgical trial, there's a trade-off because if you're really gonna, gonna enforce to the tiniest to the tiniest detail how a surgeon does that procedure, mm -hmm. A, I don't think it's feasible. If people tell you they'll do what you'll say, I think they won't. And B, uh, how is the external validity of that for daily practice? Because in daily practice, we also all do it a little bit different. Right. So we, we try to put a lot of emphasis on two or three key aspects of the technique and then left uh, a lot of the other things open but we would say if you have a certain technical detail which differs from the protocol most of those are okay as long as you do it lap and open the same so for instance if you use a a, a certain stapler cat cartridge which is which is for instance has bigger staplers than are in the protocol it's okay it's allowed as long as you do it both in lab and open, so it doesn't distort trial outcomes. So, so for open distal pancreatectomy in that trial, were most people using a stapler just like they would laparoscopic? Yeah, exactly. So the the, okay. the 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 stapler product, stapler height, everything was exactly the same, lab and open. Yes. And so, just you know, just to kind of close out that topic, what is your personal technique for uh, for transecting the pancreas laparoscopically? Uh, what stapler do you use? What height uh, do you reinforce, et cetera? Yeah. So I've spoken to so many people. I've spoken to all the, the, yeah. the great leaders on this from the U.S. as well. And uh, no matter what you do, A, it still leaks. <laughs> and, and, and B, I think it's really nice if you staple the pancreas, you don't damage uh, the surface of the pancreas. So that I took on from Horatio Esben. Our entire country took it on. Sure. So really take... Typically, it takes like four to five minutes to close the stapler. So, yeah. graded compression. So, you compress, you wait a little bit, and then after 20, 30 seconds, you feel that the pressure is, is gone. You compress a bit more, and then you, you go on. Because you need to remember that no matter how big the staple height you use, it's always a factor four to five or even more, factor 10 smaller than the actual height of the pancreas, right? You, right. you staple the portal face with the same staplers you staple the pancreas with. So, just, just think about that. Sure. Now, if I staple the pancreas at the at the neck, so ventral to the uh, portal mesenteric vein, I use a vascular cartridge. And if I staple it a bit more to the left, I use a one size uh, bigger, so one you would use for small bowel. But okay. I think the key point is to to take a lot of time to close the stapler. And sure. the uh, topic on reinforcement, I think, is is not closed. I don't use it because it it costs extra and there's no evidence sure. for it. Uh, but there are people that that actually use that argument the exact other opposite way say well it costs a lot of money so it must be good <laughs> fair enough what about for open for an open distro pancreatectomy you transect the same way or do you ever you know transect yeah. and then over sew or anything like that yeah so i of course i rarely do an open distal pancreatectomy sure so, but sometimes there are of course special cases but then i do it in exactly the same way no suturing nothing okay and so, and then on the, in the leopard trial, you guys excluded patients within one centimeter of the celiac artery, I believe. Is that your yes. practice as well? Or are you doing all, you know, even those more aggressive vascular dissections, you're doing those lap as well? No, well, 
I mean, you need you need to constantly, of course, and then I know you and all the surgeons listening are doing it, but I still mention it. I mean, you constantly need to weigh benefit, pros and cons. I mean, doing a distal minimally invasive is great, but if that means your cancer surgery is not radical, is it's in no way worth it. I mean, right. to not have a scar and go home two days earlier it doesn't weigh any, doesn't come close to a radical cancer resection. Right. So if there's if there's any doubt, uh, we just do it open. In the Got trial, it. you need to realize that so these are the onsite criteria, and you need to realize we were doing a trial with surgeons who were just trained laparoscopic right. distal just basically the months before. So, right. so we wanted zero risk. In in my practice at the moment, I short sort of use a still a five to ten millimeter safety margin from celiac trunk or portal vein. Okay, that's great. But if, if the tumor grows into colon, stomach, adrenal, I, I, that I don't mind. I take it on uh, minimally invasive, maybe with my help from a colorectal team. But I, I, I try to be very careful with, with, the, with the major vessels. Okay, great. Thank you. I think we could probably move on to the Leopard 2 trial. So this, you know, January 2019 was a busy month for you, it looks like. I think that all three of these papers were published that month. But um, yeah. so this obviously was a major paper that came out. At that time, so can you kind of summarize the background? Um, yeah. You know, if there's any big differences from what we've already talked about, and then what you guys found in yeah. this trial. So strangely, that uh, everyone was getting so enthusiastic about MIS pancreas that several of the smaller centers um, were were starting to move ahead of us. So mm. some of the centers were starting to do laparoscopic whipples on their own without a training program, and it, it was happening. And myself and several of the senior members of the Dutch Pancreatic Cancer Group, we were getting concerned because, of course, we knew the data from, for instance, the large U.S. databases that if volume is low, mortality is doubled. So right. we said, why don't we do a training program similar to the distals and see where we go from there and do the same thing with a randomized trial? So we got four centers together who could do each at least 20 laparoscopic whipples per year. Uh, we found a trainer in Baki Topal from Leuven, Belgium, who trained all of us. And we said, OK, after we've done 20, so basically the first year, uh, we start randomizing patients. Um, four centers. We had two more centers who were going to add on with robot whipple. Uh, but just before they randomized the first patient, actually literally a day before, uh, the Data Safety Monitoring Board advised us to stop the trial, and we did, just before mm. the first robot patient was operated in the trial. Mm. Wow. And so the results from the Leopard 2 trial and obviously the Data Safety Monitoring Board having you stop the trial seemed to be kind of a little, you know, obviously the other side of the coin from the from what seemed to be successful results from the Leopard 1 trial. How did that um, affect the group and the practices from that going forward? Yeah, so we, of course, it was it was a major blow to all of us because we, right. we spent a lot of love and care in, in doing these yeah. procedures and taking care of our patients. We did biotissue training every evening before I did a laparoscopic Whipple. I, I went to the trainer box and did a laparoscopic HJ and PJ on biotissue. So wow. we, we, we really took care. I think the yeah. one thing we forgot that we had some of the centers were smaller. So during the trial, we randomized one to one, meaning your volume MIS goes down by 50%. Hmm. 
meaning that, that in the smaller centers, they would do one every month, maybe one every two months, yeah. which by far not enough. So we had exactly the same criteria, exactly the same surgeons, two surgeons per case, by the way, two senior surgeons per case, and exactly the same inclusion criteria as in the series we published in Annals of Surgery, which included the very first case in all four centers with a 4% mortality in the first 100 laparoscopic whipples. So mm -hmm. even if you, if you halve the volume in the same centers, mortality doubles. Very so this, 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 this goes quite far. And the, the complications were nuts because of increased leaks. The leak rate was exactly yeah. the same. Right. It was yeah. because of two major incidents uh, during the SMV, uh, the section part, so during the resection phase. So right. after that, we had a we had a meeting, typical Dutch style. We got all surgeons together. We closed the door. We watched each other's videos, literally the moment where they had the bleeding. We discussed and we decided as a country, we would never do a laparoscopic whipple anymore. We would stop. Wow. wow. Immediately, because of course we go on, immediately, we started the Laylabs 3 training program for robot Whipple, yeah. but we doubled the, the, the volume requirements. So we said only the centers that do 50 Whipples minimum in total can join this program. Um, so we so some of the smaller centers stopped. So for instance, in Amsterdam, a second center, which is our training center, uh, they now do their robot Whipples together with us at our uh, location. Hmm. So, so your your current practice then is tilting obviously more towards robotics, especially on the Whipple side. So, um, is that you know what percentage of your Whipples in in twenty twenty do you think will be open versus robotic? Um, so, in twenty nineteen, uh, we did uh, ninety five Whipples, and of that, about thirty five uh, were uh, robots. So, we plan okay. essentially. Every Monday we plan a robot Whipple and every Tuesday one or two open Whipples. And any mm -hmm. case with BMI less than 35 and no signs of vascular ingrowth, uh, we do with the robot. Okay. Wow, so um, it seems like one of the larger concepts that we learned from the Leopard 2 trial was really the importance of the learning curve and and as you, you eloquently put your, what you learn from these procedures and implementation of new technology, can you tell us a little bit about the Laylapse program that you were discussing and um, how yeah. that can really help other centers, you know, trying to uh, adopt these uh, technologies here and around the world? Yeah. No, first of all, I, I really need to, to, uh, to thank the Pittsburgh team. So Herb Say, Amesha Reigat and Melissa Hawke, who were really... Uh, willing to help us and I think they've got for the robot an excellent training program each of them came for for one or two weeks to the Netherlands in total I think we now had them for seven weeks in one week we had lined up uh, three to five robot whipples in several centers uh, wow. my PhD then then brought them so they they found a day-to-day -day basis drove them into the separate <laughs> ORs was with them all day long so Melissa was there Oh yeah, so last week, uh, I think three weeks ago, Melissa was here for four robot ripples in the country, which was quite tiresome for her with the jet lag and all. But 
I think two or three months ago, uh, Herb Say was with me in Amsterdam, and, and he said, well, he said, I saw you do Robert Whipple. I think it was, I don't know, my case number 20 or something. He said, you didn't break one suture. Is It was like, like I saw my own Robert Whipple, like number 150. So because we really strictly followed their training program, we, we basically are standing on their shoulders and you you know exactly what to do and you're not making the same mistakes that, that they had to make during their learning curve. Yeah. What what's your advice to your, you know, to the younger surgeons in the Netherlands who are or fresh us. out of no, or us. Yeah, <laughs> or in the US, uh, who are fresh out of training and you know are thinking of adopting this technique. What's the minimum number before they fly solo? And obviously they're going through intensive training first, but yeah. uh, I mean, where do you think that number should be where you actually feel comfortable on your own? Yeah, so first of all, Robert Whipple, yeah, no, so Robert Whipple is a strange operation because if you do it the Pittsburgh approach, you do it, it's a, it's a full two-surgeon procedure, mm -hmm. which, which we don't have that often, right? It's pretty rare. So you have the, the surgeon at the bedside is working with the ligature and the staplers, yeah. and you have the surgeon with bipolar and the suturing. So it's, it's, it's a lot of communication with, between these two. So first of all, you need a very good partner, mm. and you need... You need someone who listens to you, and you need to listen to that other person. And, and that is the first thing to think about. If you have a very, very senior partner and you're very junior, it may be awkward. Yeah. So you need so basically either a senior partner that can listen very well or two juniors who are very good at doing open whipples. And, and then your absolute minimum volume for whipples in total per center should be 50. I think it's the absolute minimum, meaning that that you can do at least one or every other week a robot Whipple with with a, with a team, okay. um, because it takes more time. I mean, our we've done now 42, and it's still uh, it, we start every Monday at nine and we finish around three o'clock. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's it's I mean an open Whipple we do two in a day. So it's just it's time demanding. It's it's you make you're making it more difficult on yourself. So you need a high volume unit. Good support from leadership, good support from the OR, and and uh, and sufficient uh, volume, as I mentioned. What kind of robotic cases did you do before you took on a Whipple? I know you had obviously a lot of experience laparoscopic, but did you do some, you know, gallbladders or something like that when yeah. you first got on the robot just to kind of get the hang of the system? Yeah, so we did a few robot uh, coles. The first one we did, I'll never forget. We thought we got this nice robot. Now we're going to do a. Laparoscopic, a robot cholecystectomy where one of the most senior surgeons in the Netherlands had stopped with his laparoscopic cholecystectomy on that patient because he couldn't find the gallbladder. Uh, uh, so that was my first case ever on the robot. <laughs> was maybe not the best one to start out with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, we did a few laparoscopic cholecystectomies, a few laparoscopic distals. I did uh, two or three uh, lateral pancreatic jejunostomies with a robot in which we used one meter 30 of V-lock sutures, which is very good to practice your suturing. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, we did the full training program, which is a lot of uh, simulation, a lot of uh, bio tissue, pancreatic anastomosis. Uh, watch about 20, 30 hours of videos of robot ripples, and then we had the first case uh, being proctored. Okay, great. So, in um, in terms of the results of Leopard Two, and now moving forward to the robotic platform, do you feel that? Um, that the the robot platform is superior to laparoscopic for the pancreatic odontectomy. Um, you know, not for distals. That's a different question. Um, and and why? Yeah, I think if you're very experienced and you have a good team, uh, you can do a laparoscopic Whipple 
very well. Right. I think for mainstream use, I think the robot is just so much more control. It gives you more control. It's much less demanding. If I finish a robot ripple, it's like, okay, can we do another one? <laughs> um, it, it's just more straightforward. But I think we also should, we should not probably, we should probably not also based on the literature, probably not conclude that after Leopard 2, lap whip was a bad procedure. We, of course, we know the, no. from the two other randomized trials, right, from Spain right. and India, if, you, if, you're, if you're a very experienced team and you've got enough experience, you can do a laparoscopic whipple, no doubt. And there are several very good US surgeons who do an excellent laparoscopic whip. I just think in, in a few years, we'll just see, and we're already seeing it, that, mm -hmm. that people who do it MIS will do it on a robot because it gives you more control. Yeah. Now, what about distals? Are you doing any robotic distals at this point, or is everything still lap? No, everything's still lap. I got I got the robot only two days, so we're doing every Monday a got robot it. ripple, and every Wednesday one or two robot livers. So it's just a got choice it. we have to make, and also the hospital administration. I mean, don't forget that they the additional costs for sure. a big center is 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 almost like I don't know hundreds of thousands of dollars per year add on to laparoscopic surgery. So. Also right. to show your management that you're only using it for the cases where you really need it as an HPB team. I think at least in my uh, uh, hospital is important to, to do that. Yeah. Well, we want to be respectful of your time. We really appreciate the time that we got from you today. Um, you know, it's been a, a great discussion on all these very important papers and kind of really just appreciate your personal insight on them. So thank you for your time today. And maybe we can sit down and, and talk some more when you're in the U.S. next. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna be at the at the Pancras Club. Unfortunately, not this time at ASPBA, but I'll be at Pancras Club. And I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I think it was really uh, nice, insightful, and I think we addressed a lot of the the interesting differences between uh, Europe, Netherlands, and the U.S. Yeah. Well, sir, we we really do appreciate it, and you know, it's it's very it's a real honor for us to speak with with such an inspiring person. At least through our papers, we haven't met yet, but we'll be at the Pancras Club. Maybe we'll come up and say hi. Um, please do, please do. We'll have, we, have a beer. Yeah, I, I didn't want to say that. We can cut that part out, but I would love that. Um, <laughs> before we finish, um, is there anything you'd like to, to say to kind of cap this off to the membership, the HPBA, and then obviously the IHPBA, who will be getting the, the podcast links as well? Yeah, just just as a remark, that I we've recently seen several of the big U.S. centers uh, joining the diploma trial. So, for instance, the, the team of Dave Kuby, the, the team of Anan Al-Saidi, uh, Horatio Esben wants to join, and it, it's actually it's working now. So yeah, I, I think yeah. we, we can try it. So I think the big message is that it is feasible even to do very pragmatic, simple surgical trials um, transatlantically. And, and for me, that would be... That will be amazing if we if we do that a bit more in the future. It it can be done. It's not easy, but it, it, we have shown we are showing now with the diploma trial that you can do trials both in the U.S. and Europe simultaneously. And I think that's very cool. We randomized a patient in the U.S., Europe, and and Moscow, Russia, in the same week. And wow. for me, wow. that's that's one of one of the coolest things ever. So I I really enjoy that. That is incredibly inspiring. Um, hopefully, it's a good plug to have people join on who are listening to the podcast. And the last thing I wanted to say is, you know, one thing I've learned from a lot of my mentors in my training um, is the importance of pragmatic trials. And you definitely hit that on the head in this podcast episode. So we thank you very much for your time and your insight. It's quite inspiring and look forward to catching up with you in the future. 
All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much.